Hello, hello, and welcome to It Started With a Daydream. What a lovely chat with Mark Saxby. Mark and his wife Kerry built up a very successful business called Status Social. And as a spin-off of this, they run a charity called Positive Social. I was really intrigued to hear about Mark's journey, especially about the charity where he goes into schools and talks to secondary school children about social media. He talks about all of this and also how his faith underpins who he is and what he does. Oh, and he clears up the mystery, dum, 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 finally, about what he has against quiche. Mark has a great sense of humour and I really admire his positive attitude to life. It was good to talk to him and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) We're laughing already. Welcome to It Started With A Daydream. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So just to set the scene, I am sitting in Mark's study in his beautiful house um, and Mark is my next door neighbour. Yes, it's been always been a dream of mine to be <laughs> next to somebody like you, Holly. He started with a daydream <laughs> and look, look where we are. So how long have we known each other? You you came into my garden and I thought you were a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> <laughs> you were nearly right. Uh, yeah, five years ago was when we came to check out the neighbours. Oh my out. goodness. Yeah, we always like checking out our neighbours before we move somewhere, just to make sure they're actually going to be all right. Yeah, uh, so yeah. what happened? Yeah, well, we, we, it was more of a sliding scale. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you about the other neighbours. <laughs> where, where are we on the scale? Uh, well, there's a lot of neighbours. Um <laughs> I think you're in the top, uh, you're probably in the top top 20. Mark's one of my favourite neighbours because he has um, get-togethers, don't you? you have, is that a dream? Um, well, I, I always love bringing together people yeah. and I love building community. Um, although, probably interestingly, probably brought more out of fear in the first place, thinking I need to get people around to get to know them so that if, if somebody's breaking around our house, the neighbours will spot them. Uh, but no, actually, I do, I do more for the fun. And for the fact, I love seeing neighbours say, say to me that uh, they've, they've met people or they've chatted to people who they've, they've not chatted to for 10 years or never met. Yeah. People have been living in the same street for, for decades. I um, love that. Yeah, that is so true. I've always admired that about you both because, yeah, until I started coming to your things, I hadn't met people from up the road. Mm, I, think they were, I think they're ignoring you. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they did say. I wouldn't expect her to be here. So she's I mean, right. they're just not my calibre, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk to you because um, you have had a really interesting journey to where you are today. And you've done so many different things. Could you tell us about what it is that you're doing now? Okay, so... I have I have two two jobs now. Yeah. Uh, the the main one, which I do more or less four days a week, is I run a social media consultancy. So I we train and we manage um, people's social media for them. And we do strategy and all sorts of stuff. So that's called status social. Mm-hmm. And then we have positive social, 
which is a charity which goes into schools and teaches young people how to take back control of their lives from social media. And that's the one that you're most passionate about, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. So even though I do it one day a week, yeah. that's because uh, I need to be able to pay the bills yeah. with, with Status Social to be able to do what I do with Positive Social. So how did Status Social come about? So I was working at the BBC for 11 years and I was a journalist for about 20 years. And uh, and I'd kind of reached a, a stage at the BBC where I couldn't really see where I was going to go next. What were you doing at the BBC? Yeah, so I was news editor of uh, BBC Radio Derby. Brilliant. Uh, great job, loved it. Um, I'd gone for a, I thought, okay, next stage is probably to work for a national radio station. I'd uh, gone to see the boss of Five Live and I said, I'd love to work for, for Five Live. He said, what do you think of it, Five Live? I said, it's rubbish. So I said, it's made by journalists for journalists. He said, I agree, when do you want to start? Wow. My five-minute interview, and I, then I got I was off the job, and then I turned it down because I it didn't think well my balance. Right. I wanted to move to London. There were twelve-hour shifts. I had two young children. I thought this is just a terrible idea. Yeah. So so then I thought, okay, well, what do I do? I've got to either stay in Derby and just kind of keep plugging away and know that it's maybe not the the career aspirations I've got I want to have, but then it's mm. better to be here for the family, not move again. And uh, and then I had um. I had this idea I'd love to do marketing because mm-hmm. I, I just really enjoyed that kind of side, seeing bits of it. I spoke to somebody in marketing in Derby and I said, I'd love to be in marketing. How, how do I make it happen? And she said, you can't. You need to be qualified to be a, to be a marketer. And I thought, oh, that's that then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, and then the BBC, well, to do a short story, it took a funny turn. Uh, I had to make some decisions about the future, whether I wanted to stay or, or leave. And uh, and I, just, and, uh, I, I um, got chatting to her. Well, me and, me and my wife, Carrie, decided we were going to open a coffee shop. So we're living in another part of Derby, thought we'd open a coffee shop. Great, build community. Yeah. Yeah, lots of, there was uh, lots of money around the area where we were living. Carrie makes yeah. good cakes. Yeah, well, fair okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, we're probably going to buy them, let's be honest. Uh, and, uh, and we were going to do this coffee shop, but we never had, never, our building never became available. But in that time, mm. we went and investigated lots and lots of coffee shops. It's probably the best recipe <laughs> I've ever done. I mean, was that really a dream, or was it just that you wanted to try all the cake in Derbyshire? <laughs> it would have been horrendous. I'm so fat now. <laughs> so we tried all these places, and we went to one one cafe in uh, in the middle of Derby, and the lady who was running it said the thing that brought her most success was using Twitter to get people to come to the to the coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'd also been trained by BBC how to use social media to find news stories, but then speaking to this lady made me realise there was a commercial side to it as well. So um, when, when I had to make a decision about what's going to be the future, because there was no building available, we started, a, ultimately, I, I, we decided to start a social media consultancy. And this is like 2011. There were no other social media consultancies. Yeah. And I just, we just, it was based really about around one Google search, conversation with somebody who dabbled with it, uh, as well as copywriting. Um, set up on January the 2nd, 2011. Got our first customer on January the 2nd, 2011 from somebody who said, I've heard a rumour. You're starting this agency, can I be your first customer? And now this is it now, nearly 13 years later. I love the fact that you were told that you couldn't do marketing because you wouldn't have the qualifications and you just thought, stuff that, I'm doing, I'm doing it anyway, in my own way, because that is a lot of what you do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And what I think is interesting, isn't it, is that I realise now, looking back, that actually the best marketers, they're not really driven by their degrees or their qualifications. Mm. They're just kind of people who understand other people. Yeah. And one of the things that I've realised over the years is that 
one of my skills is to win people over. Yeah. And actually, that's what you need to understand really? as a marketer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, yeah, no, I get that. And it is, I agree. So what do you do on a sort of a day-to-day basis with the, because you've got people working for you now, haven't you? Well, no, actually, we did have people working oh. for us. This is the big change. So we've been... Well, you need we, to change your website then, Mark. Oh, well, well, there's not that many people on there anymore. Oh, yeah, no, we need to, get rid, we need to change it. But anyway, so we... Uh, <laughs> Um, we uh, so we, we grew the team over yeah. the 13 years, and about 11 years in, we had about eight of us, and uh, it was it was going well. We had a big office in town, lots of clients, mm-hmm. um, but me and Kerry were very dissatisfied with what we were doing, mm-hmm. and decided we wanted ultimately not to replace any of the staff when they left. Mm-hmm. So now we we it took us about a year and a half to get to that stage. Now it's just me and Kerry working in the business. Oh. So we have, and that's why we then moved out of our office, cut all our overheads, and we're now more profitable, happier. We have the whole of August off. We take much more holidays. We, yeah, it's, and life is, and we, I only work four days, and that's, that's why I can then work on positive social. Yeah. Because of what I do with safe social. Yeah. So going back to your original question. Yeah. What I do on a day-to-day basis. It's a bit of a combination. So I will, um, like, tomorrow I'm going to be training um, somebody in house use LinkedIn so they mm-hmm. can use it to they actually want to use it to get a job but normally it's that's unusual normally it's training people how to do it to be able to get business to raise the profile of their businesses that sort of thing and then I also manage social media so we manage maybe about five or six different accounts based on sometimes it's interviewing people and turning their ideas into LinkedIn posts it could be running social media adverts it could be showing it could, it's all sorts of anything that's to do with social media yeah we do so like last week I trained Bristol City Council's customer service department how to use social media to win over people who live in Bristol okay so because it when you first told me about it I thought don't people don't businesses just do that themselves why would they hire somebody to do it but obviously they do because you're doing it yeah well the most most businesses about I would say 99.9% of businesses who use social media do it badly yeah Uh, and what we do is we do it well so if we work with a client for instance they will get a return. Yeah. So you know, we, you know, we so often businesses are doing it and they're not they're just kind of plugging away and they're not really getting the results. So what are they doing wrong? Well, well maybe well, they're not away so secrets. <laughs> well it's basically they're often doing different things wrong. So it could be that they're not they're not I mean because one of the things I talk about a lot, because I do a lot of public speaking as well. Yeah. And it's a lot about excellence and about doing things really well. So understanding the algorithms, being consistent, yeah, understanding your target audience. So we've made £19.2 million pounds in sales other than our clients through social media. And not many businesses have done that. I mean, That's one amazing. business alone has made £13 million. Pounds. Wow. Um, we've got a few who've made over a million, and then lots of others who've made hundreds of thousands. And actually, to be honest, there's probably millions more that we've never been able to account for because yeah. our clients either won't or don't tell us about it. So that's where I say the success is, what's your objective as a business? Yeah. And is social media helping you achieve your objective? If it isn't, then you're not doing it properly. Yeah. I I'd say that you're really good at promoting yourself um on especially on social media I think there's a fine line between being braggy and promoting yourself and a lot of people find it difficult to big themselves up what what's your take on that what do you think about that so I have a my my um, my strategy mm-hmm. is to change the lives of people who read my posts. So if by doing that, at the same time there is a there is a kind of maybe a slightly subtle marketing in there, which ultimately says 
you, you know Mark, you like Mark, you trust Mark, and therefore then you want to try Mark, buy from Mark. Mm-hmm. But you've got to do the others first. So by telling the story of who I am and my family and my life and what I'm, what I'm doing, but, but not actually ever saying, aren't I wonderful? Mm. <laughs> I, I, then, I then build up this, this position. I'm not sure trust... you do hold back. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all relative though, isn't it? Yeah. Because I think some people, they're very much blatant. Yeah. Um, I think one of, one of the things I think is interesting is people will say to me, I've been reading your social media posts for nine years and I love what you're doing. And now I've got a job in a big business and I've got loads of budgets. So can I spend it with you because mm-hmm. I trust you? So That's my posts, my posts yeah. work. Yeah. In terms of the balance I get, my posts, my posts have the have the desired effect. Like it, I know I've got a few enemies over time who think who so even have said that yeah, your life can't be like that. It's, it's too it's too perfect. And I think, well, I, that's because you're not you're not really taking in the, the stuff where I'm talking about struggles or yeah, um, yeah. things like that. But I think yeah, ultimately it's it's about you. You don't talk about your kind of what you're doing well as well. Yeah. Nobody ever, nobody ever knows. No, that's true. But it is. I find it really difficult to do that. I think a lot of people do find it quite difficult to not feel braggy. That's it's it's a re, it's a bit of a hurdle for me. I kind of hold back from shouting about things that I'm doing or saying things that I'm doing because I just think, oh, maybe that all you know I always talk about imposter syndrome on here that kind of element of imposter syndrome thinking why would anybody be that bothered about me it's that kind of feeling you've got this um confidence that I really admire where do you think that's come from um probably from my faith I yeah. would say I think one of the things my Christian faith and just knowing that I'm a son of God not the son of God, just want to point out there. I'm making David Icke kind of claims here. But knowing I'm, I'm his son means that actually nothing else really matters. Yeah. I'm so, I can just rest in him. Yeah. And so then, therefore, then, you know, it's nothing else matters. Well, what people think of me doesn't really matter because the only person that matters is, is, is you know, Father God's thoughts and his views on me. And I know he thinks I'm perfect and wonderful and amazing and incredible. And he sees my flaws as well. But you know, he sees past that because he, he loves me. But even people who have a faith strong like you don't necessarily have the confidence that you have. No, no, you're right. I, I think it's because they don't believe it. It's right. very hard to believe yeah. that somebody can love you unconditionally. You think about even, you know, your husband or your wife. Mm. It's quite hard to think of them. I, I you know, I struggle, to, I struggle to see that Kerry loves me unconditionally because, mm. you know, I see all the things that are wrong with me, but I find it easy to believe that God loves me unconditionally. And that's probably just from... I don't know why that is, but I just ha- have an acceptance of that. I don't see in a lot of people who have got faith, they don't quite yeah. they, they protect themselves. Often I understand why, because of things, you know, the way that their own parents have treated them mm-hmm. or their upbringing or their family or it could be our friends. It could be anything that could create the barrier. Yeah. But I'm very, I'm very determined to knock down the barriers. Yes. So when, when something comes into my mind of something that's stopping me from accepting God's love the way it should be, I, I then, you know, I, I knock it down. So mm. I, you know, forgive that person. Uh, there's been a lot of people I want to forgive mm. over the years. People who've believed me, people who've been bad bosses, people who've been, you know, rubbish colleagues. You know, I've had to do a lot of you forgiveness. You hold a grudge. You know, it's very freeing. I'll tell you what, there is nothing more freeing than forgiving somebody. Even when they don't know you've forgiven them, there is a, such a freedom in that. Well, you're sort of in a prison, aren't you? Until mm. you forgive somebody. You kind are. of in your own prison. And, and then, and they cost by holding on forgiveness... They, they, their life goes on. So mm. who, are you, who are you hurting? Just yourself. Yeah. Just as an aside, just because I was looking at your um, 
barrier. <laughs> no, no, what well, well, you barrier. did screen <laughs> between you and Kerry. So Mark was telling me earlier that um, he and Kerry used to sit opposite each other, but they had to move their desks around because Mark couldn't stop gazing at Kerry, <laughs> which is really sweet. We've only been married 25 years, oh, you know. Oh, <laughs> it's lovely. Um, so going back to um, your dream you're at your sort of your main dream which is this positive social isn't it Mm. so tell us a bit more about that and what you do and what impact you want to have so about probably eight eight and a half years ago maybe you know probably around that sort of time we we could could see that young people started to have issues with social media Mm -hmm. even though it's quite early days i could see the issues that people were having and we said well why don't we start doing some some kind of you know a little trial, do some in, do some in schools, see what the schools think to it. So we did these pilot schemes, uh, going in, did sessions to classrooms, um, thirty kids at a time, went really well. Um, but then status social took off, and to manage you know the team and manage it, you know what was all the stuff that goes on with running a whole running a business, it meant the positive social just didn't happen. We were doing it kind of, you know, we had a great school in Derby called Derby High School, and invited us in year after year. But that was the only school, so it didn't really it didn't really happen. But I always felt very frustrated that this was something that I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but we couldn't do it. And so and so then when 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 lockdown happened and we you know both me and Kerry both felt the same thing. It's time to change things. Well, how do we change things? How do we do positive social? We need to create the space in our lives, and I think that's the thing is that we often want to do things, mm-hmm. but then we don't create the space in our lives and we fill it with, with rubbish. So one of my challenges at the moment is making sure that I don't fill my space in my life with my phone. Mm. So I don't want to look at my phone because why am I spending two or three hours a day on my phone when I could be spending two or three hours a day with my wife or in the garden or with the children or or, or writing a book or or doing positive social? So I'm already filling my whole life with rubbish, so I need to stop it. It's quite ironic, isn't it, for a social media (laughs) expert. But I love that. Yeah, absolutely. This is an irony irony altogether, isn't it, that I'm telling – on one hand, I'm selling businesses go on social media, although I am telling them to be clever about the way they do it. Yeah. And then I'm going to schools and telling kids to stay off social media. Yeah. But I'm not even saying to kids actually to stay off social media. What I'm worth saying is, and I suppose what I did with, with when we when we made the change, we then started putting effort into it. So like it was only about just under a year ago we started really pushing it. Well, I say really pushing it, slightly pushing it because we were still kind of trying to get our lives in order. It then took off. Mm-hmm. And when I go in, when we go into schools, we don't say to children, you know, to students, stay off social media because you know that's unrealistic. Mm-hmm. What we say is. Are you sure you're making the right decisions about how you're spending your time? Mm. So we'll say to them, for instance, describe your perfect day. So they describe their perfect days, and you know, it'll be daft things like you know, having dinner with Ronaldo, or you know, going to Dubai for the day, that sort of thing. Really funny things. Mm. And then I say, how many of you said I want to be on TikTok during, my, during your perfect day? And mm. you might get one smart aleck in the class, but the rest of them kind of go, go all quiet. And then I say, why are you then you ruining your best days? Because you can't have perfect days every day. Mm. Why are you ruining your best days? By going on your phone, and at the end they all make commitments to go off their phones, mm-hmm. or or other commitments like I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave Instagram because it makes me feel sad. Leaving TikTok is washing my mind. So how do you know? Because that sounds amazing. How can you then monitor that you've had that impact? What do you? So obviously you're going in and and you know they're listening to you and obviously inspired by what you're saying and um, can see it. But when they go back to their normal everyday lives with friends and communicating through social media and peer pressure and all of that how do you monitor 
that they are going to change their use. How do I know, Holly, that when we leave this conversation, you're not going to go away and you're not going to try and spend less time on your mobile phone? Because I know you will. And I know and I know the kids will as well. Now, it might not last forever, but I know they will. And I know what will happen is my message will keep on coming back to them yeah. over the years. And they'll know there is a... And what's more important is they'll know, they know there's a different way of doing it. Yeah. So therefore, then I think they will come back to it. But even that aside... We also do follow-ups to the schools. Yeah. So the schools, we've got a process in place for the schools then to create social media groups made up of the year, after year sevens and eights that are doing the sessions. They have people who then kind of support them, have the conversation. They meet monthly. So it creates a culture in the school. Plus then we go in the year later as well. Yeah. So it is it is an ongoing thing. But also, I also recognise, I can't make every child change, but I know that what, what I say will not leave them. And I know that as well because... They talk about the sessions for weeks later. Yeah. And you don't get that with other with other lessons at schools. No, and it sows a seed. I mean, I asked you that question because I think I asked you a couple of months ago the same question and you told me that um, there were follow-ups and things in school, which I thought was brilliant. If you can have ambassadors or, you know, follow-ups, like you say, then it's got to have more of an impact, hasn't it, than just a one-off going in and, and doing a talk. Mm. And remember as well, the teachers also have to sit in sessions because yeah. that's part of the criteria. Yeah. So, of course, they then come to the end of the session and say, oh, I've been really challenged. Yeah. So then they start then thinking about it more, which means they're more likely to have the conversations. And yeah. now because they've heard, us, heard how we do it, they know now how the language to use and they yeah. know the reaction of the young people in the class here. So it actually changes the whole school, I think. Yeah. Well, I hate a whole school. The year we're doing it, but not the whole school. <laughs> so are you hoping to do more of that kind of stuff? Yeah, so our, our uh, dream is to is to get in front of every year seven in the UK. Wow. Um, we've already got, we've now got... Uh, 20... That is a dream. Maybe yeah. I'll be interviewing you <laughs> this time next year. We've already got, well, we're considering um, about, what do we have? Until about two months ago, we had two schools workers. We now have 27 um, covering... A lot of the UK. Yeah. Uh, got some in Scotland. Um, we've also been invited to um, to try and get to do some schools in Bahrain. Wow. Um, so I actually think the biggest challenge will be resources, funding, and all the other stuff that comes with running a charity. So you have people who do these talks for you as well. Yes. It's not just you. Not so just how did you find those people? And do they then have a training session with you? Do you do you train them up? Yes. They, so do they shadow you or how does that work? So they are they are experienced schools workers already. Mm-hmm. And so then what we then do is we then show we train them through the how to deliver our sessions. Yeah. And then we go and yeah, we try and watch them when they're yeah. doing it. Which I get I think it's one of my other challenges is I've got to keep on top of the standards. Yeah. yeah. But that's one of the, that's our that's our model. So how does the um, charity side of it work? Is that how is it funded? So we do so year sevens and eights free mm-hmm. as part of our charitable thing, and yeah. then we charge all other years. Right. Uh, and we also charge independent schools as well. Yeah. So we use the money from the other years and independent schools into the year sevens and eights, mm-hmm. but we also have different lots of different funding models. So we have one international business that's paying us to go into schools in Cornwall. Right. We've got another uh, schools worker who actually is doing as part of a CSR. We've got another group. Um, they're a church group, and uh, and they want to offer it as extra value to the schools they already go into. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got lots of different models. Yeah. Which, so it's not all reliant on us having to get loads of 
loads no. of money in, although there's definitely a, we're at a point where we need to get businesses yeah. to support us. We've got another school, who in another business rather, in, um, in North Nottingshire, who said, I really want you to go into my daughter's school, can I pay you to do so? Amazing. So said, Great, let's do it. <laughs> could any of the businesses that you already work with, would they, could, would yes. they be interested well, in sponsoring? Are. Yeah, yeah. they have some ones already doing it. But Brilliant. that's the thing, it's, again, I need to, that's my next dream is to yeah. try it. Because I'm a big believer in, you know, people say, what's your CSR project? And I say, we don't have a CSR project, we just mm. do what's right. Yeah. And I'll, and what's right is to help young people yeah. tackle this massive issue. Yeah. Um, so therefore, then I'll, I think we need to get more businesses involved because actually they've got a part to play. Yeah. And it's important. And, and it will affect, you know, they might think, well, I'm, you know, I've not got any kids. It doesn't really matter because the kids of today are going to be your employers, of the, employees of the future. Yeah. And if they're going to be addicted to their mobile phones, they're not going to be used to. Yeah, they're going to be running the country. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so... Where you're at now with your business and your charity, have you had any wobbly moments where you've thought, I need to be employed, or has it all been plain sailing? Um, we're all, I always feel we're very blessed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's no doubt about it. We, haven't, we, had, we had one very close moment, but even then we weren't that worried. We don't tend to get worried about the things being carried. We're quite yeah. Uh, you are quite, pretty chill. Yeah, we're quite positive about life. Yeah. Um, where we had uh, we had one client who lost our money. They owed us. Oh, I think it was. I can't remember how much it was. It was thousands and thousands and thousands. We couldn't afford. We couldn't pay the mortgage. Hmm. And uh, it was uh, one day, one day to go. And they said, "Oh, we've made a mistake. We sent your money. I think it was we sent your money to America or something by mistake. Something something ludicrous." Um, and, it, and normally they were really bad payers and it was slow. They would take like 60 days to pay. Yeah. And, and we, only, we needed to get it the next day. So um, we, we were like, okay, well, we, we were, I remember we were in a playground, we were on a holiday when we heard the news and we just prayed in the playgrounds and then the next day the money was in our account. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. That was a lot easier, a lot easier when you, you know, like when you, when you are worried about something, to have no outlet is yeah. so difficult. Yeah. When you can, when you can pray, it makes things so much easy doesn't mean we always get answered to prayer all the time but there's yeah. something about yeah. that freedom that release to be able to kind of put it in someone else's hands and say I can't do anything about this yeah you've got to do something now God because it's out of my hands I admire that I wish that I had that I, I think a lot of people probably wish that they had that do you have any um advice for anybody who is thinking about doing something outside of their normal nine-to-five job but don't know how to go about it or um, aren't sure whether to take the plunge. I so I when I when we go to um, and talk to students mm. about looking for jobs, and I, I, I what I say to them is because you know you go to university students and they're like applying for loads and loads of graduate schemes and yeah. get, there's hundreds and hundreds of students going for it and they get and they get all demoralised and don't get it. And I just say to them, forget the conventional route. Decide who you want to work for. Mm. Ring the person up and say, I want to work for you, Holly Stanford. How do I make it happen? Mm -hmm. And you'll find that doors will open yeah. that way. And I think one of the things that we, we often do is we let, we think, we let conventional barriers get in the way of what we, what we think we can do. Mm. Or what we, what, what we, so like the person said, you know, you can't be in marketing. Yeah. You know, it's easy to think, well, I can't be in marketing. Well, that's, that's her opinion. Mm. You, know, why, you know, there was a boy at my school. So I wanted to be a journalist from the age of like 14. And he wanted to be a journalist probably, probably, probably from the age of 12. Mm. He walked into the local paper, said, I'm making tea for you until they make me a journalist. And now he's, uh, now he's working for a national newspaper. 
That's amazing. To have that confidence, though, to have that, you've got to have a level of self-belief, haven't you, to be able to do that? Yeah, and I think as well, you've just got to, to realise that, that actually the world isn't, we, we, we kind of put the world in a bit of a model. Yeah. This is how the world is. This is what I've got to do. I've got to go to school. I've got to go to university. I've got to get a job. And then I've got to work my way up. And I might apply for some jobs, but I've got to have the right experience to get the job. Mm. Well, I just totally disagree with that. I think yeah. you, can, you can open up so many doors. Yeah. It, have you ever heard of the Benjamin Franklin effect? I have not. This is great. Oh, so Benjamin Franklin. He was uh, one of the founding fathers of America. And I hope I've got the story right. And there was somebody in the in the Senate who he, who he really disliked Benjamin. So Benjamin Benjamin decided I want to win him over. Mm-hmm. So he found out this his, his enemy had a book in his library, his own personal library, and he and he wrote a letter to him. Said I've, I've heard about this amazing book. Can I borrow it? Mm-hmm. So his enemy, because of course it's polite, sent him the book. Benjamin sticks it on his shelf and leaves it for two weeks. Sends it back saying how gratefully he is that he learned from this book that he hadn't even read. They become firm friends. So the Benjamin Franklin effect ultimately is asking somebody else for a favour wins you favour. Mm-hmm. So if I said you know, to somebody, I would like to work for you, yeah. I would like to do this for you, can you help me do it? They're more indebted to help you because you've asked them for a favour, not because you've done something for them, because they've done something for you. Well, because I think sometimes it, it all, you're kind of almost offering a little bit of vulnerability, aren't you? Mm. It's like when you open up to somebody about something emotional that's happening in your life. And then you find that they're more likely then to open up to you. Yes. And then a friendship develops that's on a deeper level. Mm. And I suppose yes. that's the thing, wasn't it? Benjamin ultimately said to his enemy, even though we hate, even though you, we, you'd hate me and you probably think I hate you, actually, I'm being vulnerable by asking for something that you love. Yeah, yeah. I've got a really important question for you next, Mark. <laughs> and it is following some research on your website what is wrong with quiche? Oh, I knew this was going to what come What do you have against quiche? Because I love a bit of quiche. Uh, I thought this was going to be a, love I, I a thought, bit of quiche. I thought this was a podcast without swearing. <laughs> um, the Q word is, well, I mean, we, we don't call it that word in the house. We just call it vomit in a plan case. Um, we, we've, yeah, it's, well, it's all because, again, this is what happens when you, when you go to church. Whenever there's any kind of bring and share type meal, people bring slimy, cheap looking quiche. And not just one rows and rows and rows of the stuff and unless you get to the front of the queue and get maybe a few samosa or sausage rolls and the trouble is Jesus said the last will be first and the first will be last well that means that's maybe not right buffet queue you end up with loads and loads of quiche and I tell you what it's just it's just hell on earth so we I decided to launch a, a campaign group called Christians Against Quiche I got it was featured on the BBC and the Sunday Times Daily Mail mm-hmm. uh, in the international radio and even now, the uh, the momentum is creeping along. <laughs> you could be doing some quiche makers out of a job here. Yeah, well. Oh, quiche businesses. <laughs> I love a bit of quiche. Don't, can we not? Can we not? I mean, what? What? You come round to my house, and you now, you now, you now abusing our hospitality. Well, I've got a better question now. So Mark hasn't. I repeat, hasn't listened to my podcast. So, but I don't think you even knew it existed, did you? Well, I, I knew you come around to chat about something. <laughs> so this is the question that I ask everybody at the end. So we're coming to the end. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry um, of the podcast, and that is, you'll like it. If you had a magic seed, <laughs> what would you grow? Well, anything at all. Anything, anything at oh. all. Just you can seed. think about it for a bit and I'll just edit out the pause if you like. That's a really honest question. 
see if you'd listen to the pod, you'd be prepared for this question. You should have warned me. Um, so I would say that one of the things, again, that goes with my faith, mm-hmm. that is probably helps in so much things and what we've talked about already, is I always I have this inner joy, which no matter what the circumstances around, it's always there. Nothing can damage it. You know, even in those times, like I did fall down a 12-foot manhole a few years ago. That was quite an adventure. But that joy, it was the inner joy. We could have that, done a whole podcast about are, you in that manhole. We could have done. Um, and there was the inner joy that kept me going. And, and so I think if I had a magic seed, that my seed would be like would be like a you know a mustard seed that, mm. that everyone else would be able to have that joy it would spread it would just become bigger big plants so that everyone then takes from the plant and they also take the joy oh that is a lovely answer have you heard that quote and i don't know who says it but it's it's one that has kept me going many times in my life it's and it goes in the midst of winter i finally learned that there was within me an invincible summer and you have that invincible summer that's a great quote on that note i am going to um say goodbye mark saxby and it has been a joy to talk to you as always quite often mark and i will bump into each other on the shared driveway and um, it's never just a quick hello is it never (laughs) well it's been a pleasure thank you thank you